Good morning again. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to find them and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, and we've we've got uh, just this week and next week left in our parable series. We've been looking at it, asking the question, what did Jesus really say? This morning, um, we'll be looking at this parable, parable of the great banquet. If you're interested in, uh, obviously, we've only been able to cover uh, 10 or so parables that Jesus told. He taught a lot more than that. And if you're interested in um, reading further, kind of in your own study, I can encourage you uh, in a, just a, with a couple of materials. Um, two g- very good books um, that I can think of right off the top of my head. Um, one is by Simon Kistemacher, The Parables of Jesus. And another one is uh, by a gentleman named Wenham, and uh, a similar title, The Parables of Jesus. John MacArthur is a, a good resource. Uh, Tim Keller's Sermon Series. Um, on the parables that he did back in 1992 is uh, very good as well. And I think he has a more recent one, though I've not listened to those. Um, and this morning I'll be uh, following both uh, Kistemacher and uh, Keller to a pretty good degree as we work our way through this uh, section. So if you've got your Bibles open, I invite you to uh, follow me as we read verses 12 to 24. And Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still others said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word this morning as we come to it. We pray. Just as Jesus said that we would have eyes to see it and ears that are opened, ready to hear it. And then, Father, we would pray that our hearts would be plowed, uh, that you would produce a harvest in us that is pleasing to you, that brings honor and glory to your name and extends your kingdom. And we would pray it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So here's the scene. If you just look there at the subheading in 14, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. He's been invited over to dinner, and, um, and he's gone to the dinner. And at the dinner, one of the things that he noticed was that uh, as these folks came to the dinner, they all took the seats of prominence. Um, so uh, typically the way this would have happened is there would have been a horseshoe series of uh, something like, a, like couches around the table. And um, you would have had the person of honor seated at the head of the table at the end. And then radiating out from him, typically the custom was that those who had the most prominence would sit uh, at the places of honor nearest the, the uh, honored guest. But typically what you wanted to have happen was you would, if you were, uh, if you were polite, is you would sit far away, and then as the table filled up, if someone wanted you to sit closer to the honored guest, then they would place you there closer to the person of prominence, and you would get the honored seat. And so you waited until you were invited to take those seats. But Jesus noticed that when those folks showed up, when they all came in, those seats filled up quickly. And so he challenged them on that, and he, he talked about humility with respect to the way in which uh, these dinners went and the ways in which uh, people interacted with one another. And he was talking more than just about a dinner setting. He was talking about the way in which you live, the way in which you interact um, with everyone around you. And so he was pointing, directing them in, into these, uh, the, this attitude of humility. And in the course of that, obviously, we read this section um, in which Jesus challenged the host and he talks about uh, who it is that you should even invite to dinner. Now, Jesus isn't saying don't have your friends over, don't have, uh, don't have folks who are wealthy over to dinner. What he's saying is if he's, he's getting at the reason, why do you do this? Why do you fellowship? Why are you breaking bread with people? Is, is it to be generous? Is it to enter into their lives? Or is it that you might put on display your finest so that they will bring you to their house and put on their display of their finest? Which is it? And he was really getting at the heart. He's really getting at what, do you, what is it that you care about? Do you care about moving in those circles? Or do you care about reaching out and ministering and, be a part, and being a part of people's lives who perhaps um, may not look and live like you? And of course, that's really what he's after. And, um, and then we move to, uh, it, it's out of that context of Jesus talking about these things that this man pipes up in verse 15. And, um, and here's where I want us to begin thinking about this. I want us to begin thinking about Jesus and this banquet idea. Now, you all have heard um, by now, certainly, um, the news out of Paris from Friday evening. Tragic, uh, terrible, horrifying, gut-wrenching, unbelievable kinds of things happening. And maybe you look around the world and you say, our country is, our country, the world is in bad, bad shape. And you would be right. It is. And sometimes we say things like, it's, where, where, when will it end? Where will it end? Um, this isn't the country. I mean, I hear people say this. This isn't the country I grew up in. This, I don't recognize this place. Um, a couple of years ago, Jody and I, um, we were living in Louisville, Mississippi, sleepy little town there in, uh, in Mississippi. And uh, we went to look at this house that we were 
perhaps pondering. We were thinking about buying, and so we went, and um, we got a look-see at the house. It was empty. But I remember going into the house, and, uh, and there were three doors. And on all three doors, there were a series of locks that started at the top and ran all the way down the door. I, I'm talking seven, eight, nine, ten locks. I mean, too many, okay? Too many locks. And, um, and, and someone said, the lady that was showing us, I said, yes, uh, uh, there was a, a lady living here, and, and um, she, she, was, she was terrified, absolutely terrified, that, she was, that someone was going to get her. And so she had these locks, you know, a chain lock and a sliding lock and a this lock and a that lock and a deadbolt and a deadbolt and a deadbolt. All three doors covered in locks. And you can see how you could get there, right? You watch the news, and, and, and the world just looks scary from that perspective. But let me, let me just put it into perspective. 2,000 years ago, Nero was burning Christians at the stake, lighting the Colosseum so that they could have their sporting events where Christians were literally thrown to the lions and people sat in the stadium and watched for sport. Are things bad? Yes. They're bad today. Have they always been bad? Yes, they've always been bad. It's one of the parts of, of our story, the human condition, that, that causes us to give pause and consider who, who, who are we? What kind of a people are we? What kind of a world is it that we're living in? And we, we are living in a world that is darkened by sin. Absolutely everywhere around us, you will see it. Open the pages of your paper. You'll read about it. Go to the history textbook. It's there. The world has always been dark, and it will continue to be dark with the glimmers of light um, that Christian people place in it as God transforms us and sends us out into the world, right? So it's in that kind of a context as we think about the world, as we think about those things, as we look at the Scriptures, they saw this dark, dark place. And there's always, however, a note of hope in humanity that, that there's always a story. And, and, in the, and in our story, it was always there that someone was going to come, that it would be different, that it would be undone, that the world would be made right. Of course, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that would be an undoing of what you and I see each and every day. And there is this note of hope. Daniel chapter 7 gives us uh, this kind of hope as, as in Daniel the Son of Man is talked about, the one who would come and, and he would bring with him a new kingdom. A kingdom in which the, the light of heaven would shine brightly. And so Jesus comes on the scene and, and he describes himself as the Son of Man. Now you and I hear that and okay, obviously that makes some sense to us. Yes, he's a Son of Man. But he has flesh like us. But they understood it in the context of Daniel 7 of this promised one who would come and usher in a new kingdom and a new way, uh, uh, flourishing cities and, and all those sorts of grand and wondrous things. And so they heard Son of Man and they understood 
That's the hope we have. That's this longing that we have. And so it's in that context that that Jesus is on the scene. And it's in that context that Jesus in this parable is talking about a great banquet at the end. And what he's saying is the kingdom of God is like this great banquet. A lavish new kingdom. You can think of Think of the idea of a banquet, a banquet, which I think in my head, when I hear banquet, I think TV dinner. I don't know about you. (laughs) That says something about the house I grew up in, maybe. Um, My mom cooked wonderful meals, right? But there were a few banquet TV dinners. Um, But when you hear banquet, what do you think? You think lavish. I'm going to eat till I'm stuffed. It's going to be, you know, fine dining at its best. It's... It's a place where you go and your cares fall away and and all of the worries of life melt away and you have an amazing time. Just think think about the first miracle that Jesus did. Now, miracles in the New Testament, it's not that miracles were never, Jesus never performed miracles to just perform miracles. They're, they're, They're often called signs. So his miracles pointed towards something, right? Let me ask you, what was his first miracle? Anybody remember? Okay, I'm hearing it. Water into wine, right? The wedding feast at Cana, John chapter 2. That's Jesus' first miracle. Now, now think about that. Jesus' first miracle was to go to a wedding feast, a party, a banquet. He went to a party that was kind of happening. And he turned it into the most lavish party you could imagine. How did he do that? He didn't do it by making Welch's grape juice. Jesus took water and he turned it into the finest wine. And the merrymaking became really astonishing merrymaking. They had a great time. He threw a lavish party. He took an average ordinary party and he made it fantastic. Now, if that's a sign, tell me, what was Jesus saying about his ministry? He was saying, I came that I would usher in a great and lavish banquet, that I would usher in this kingdom that is going to transform the world, the way in which we live, the way in which you and I see life. I'm going to change that. And so he talks about it as a banquet. He talks about it as this great feast. And so here... As uh, he's at a dinner, he talks about how to make that dinner better, how to make that dinner more amazing. And he says one of the ways that you can do that is by going out and inviting the world to your banquet. Going out and inviting uninvited guests and making them guests at the table. A la Syrian refugees that are coming over by the thousands, by the droves, right? And, and so many of us are frightened and scared by that instead of looking at it as an opportunity. The world is coming to Atlanta, Georgia. We have an opportunity through folks like this to make an impact and to see things happen around the globe. So that's Jesus. That's the context. Here he is. And this man pipes up and he says, blessed is the man who gets to eat at that amazing banquet. 
Blessed is that man who gets to eat at this amazing banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, yes, let me tell you about that kingdom. So quickly, let's look at this kingdom as as Jesus describes it for us. Here's the first point. It's a gradual kingdom. Okay, it's what theologians call the now and the not yet. There's a sense in which as Jesus comes, he ushers in that kingdom. He is bringing the kingdom with him. He's establishing that kingdom. And that is the entrance into the kingdom, right? And Jesus begins, as he comes in his ministry, he begins to give us a taste of what the kingdom looks like. Not in its fullness. It isn't complete yet. But Jesus comes and he's going to give us a taste. And so you see the language as he, tell, as he begins to tell this parable, right? Jesus replied, a certain man was what? He was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. So there you have, and you can stretch that, you can stretch that verse out. Because Jesus comes, he's, or, or, the, the banquet man is preparing this banquet, and he's sending out his invitations. That's a process. There, there's something going on. Before the banquet happens, it has to be prepared. All through the preparation period, which is what Jesus, that's the period you and I are currently in. We're in that preparation period. We're getting to taste a little bit of the banquet. When I was a kid, my mom often would make brownies or cookies or cake. And, uh, and so there was the process of her making those, which was quite yummy in itself, right? I would go in and she would be in there and she'd have a bag of those Toll House, um, you know, chocolates sitting there. And so while she was over here, I was over there putting a few of those in my mouth. And then she would move and do this and I would go and I would, I, you know, do that number in the in the bowl, and then she would finish with the with the beater, the beaters, the you know the lean those little things, and she'd <laughs> click them off. <laughs> hey, and then the cake would go into the oven, and there would be a process in which it was baking. All along the way, I was getting to taste that. Okay, not in its fullness. I didn't get the slice of cake. I didn't get the brownie. I didn't get the cookies. And so Jesus said, there's a process here, and the kingdom is gradual. Listen, that is hard for a prideful people, okay? Because pride is not accustomed to being told, you have to wait. Pride says, I want it now because I deserve it now, and I demand it now, and I get what I want. And so pride is not accustomed to waiting. And that's why all engrafted into everything that Jesus is talking about is humility, right? It takes humility to understand that it doesn't all happen right now. That there are still aches and pains and sorrows in all of life and everything that we go through. Why? Because the kingdom hasn't yet been, it hasn't yet come in its fullness. And so we're waiting and we're anticipating. We're savoring the goodness now. We know that we have the invitation. It's in our back pocket. It's a, it's a precious part of who we are. It's a guaranteed seat at the banquet, and yet we haven't yet sat down. Listen, some of you are there and you're struggling. You're impatient. You want the full feast, and I get it. And, and when we see things like Paris happen on Friday night, we say, Lord, come quickly. 
bring the banquet, we're ready. And he may be saying to us, it's not yet time. And so the kingdom is gradual. It doesn't come all at once. It's a gradual kingdom. Here's the second thing. It's a free kingdom. It's a free kingdom. This challenges our humility, okay? It challenges our humility. Look at verse 17. Come, he says, for everything, everything is ready. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell them, Come, for everything is now ready. It's done. The meal is set. Just come and eat. That's that free invitation. That is that free offer of the kingdom, of the gospel, that is, that is frankly, offensive to us. Because what it says is, come and eat at this banquet, and you can do nothing to add to what I have set. Someone described it this way. It's like getting invited to the nicest restaurant you can possibly imagine and you showing up with a TV dinner. Here, I'd like to add to the meal. Really? What do you think you're going to add to my meal? And listen, we show up at the gospel. We show up at this kingdom event. And how often are we saying, look, here." Here's what I've done. I've gone a whole year. I, I haven't said a curse word. I've gone a whole year. I, I, I haven't done this or I haven't done that or I have done this and I have done that. But it's a free meal. It's a free offer. The gospel is free. It is by faith. It is through grace. And it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom... The free offer of the gospel is this. He's done everything for you. There is nothing left for you to do. The gospel is not a handout to help you do something. You don't come to it and you don't have to say, here's what I've got, here's my offering. Okay, you've done enough. Now here, we're just going to give you the, we're going to give you the rest. It's not just helping you up a little bit. It's not just a little addition to something you've already done. The gospel is free. And it is Christ's work for you on your behalf. He paid the penalty for your sin. He lived a righteous life for you that is credited to your account. And that is the free offer. And it's pictured here in verse 17 in the invitation, Come, everything is ready. All you've got to do is sit and eat. Here's the third point. It's an ordinary kingdom it's an ordinary kingdom i want you to notice who ends up coming to the kingdom down in verse 21 the servant goes back he reported to his master that all of these people who had been sent an invitation who had accepted the invitation don't come and so he comes back to his his master he reports to the master and the owner owner of the house becomes angry and he says in verse 21 go out quickly into the streets and alleys and towns and bring the poor the crippled the blind and the lame Someone said it this way, the closer, we are, uh, the, the closer we are to power and wealth and status and education, the more difficult it, it becomes for us to enter the kingdom. Isn't that what Jesus says? It's easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? The, the reason is 
because the more wealth, the more power, the more education we have, the more we think we can take the gospel and transform it into our image as opposed to letting it transform us into his image. We think we know better. And we're frankly, we become offended by this idea that I can add nothing to my salvation, that he's already done it all for me. It's offensive to us. The Apostle Paul says it's offensive to us in 1 Corinthians when he talks about where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where are all these people? Has God not humbled us, right? Has he not humbled them by sending Jesus into the world? Has he not humbled us by giving us a gospel that says to us, keep your good works, I don't need them. Keep your efforts, they're not desired here, wanted here. Absolutely. And so it's an ordinary kingdom in this sense. That the kingdom goes out, it flows towards those who show up at the end of verse 21, to those who are in need. What greater need is there? It's on display as he talks about those who are poor and blind and lame, who are struggling in this life. They understand, they're acutely aware of their need. Listen, when you have money, when you have power, when you have fame, when you have status, when you have all of these things, it insulates you from the sense of how naked and needy you really are. I don't remember the gentleman's name, but how many... This, this is a generational test. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you are familiar with Minecraft? Okay. All right, so... I'm going to tell you about it. It's a computer game. Okay? It's, a com- it's not even really a game. It's a computer world. And not even really a good world. It's kind of an awkward looking uh, pixelated world in which you go and you build things and then destroy things and you chase people around with bows and arrows and all sorts of things. Christopher could come up and give us a lesson. Okay? When I look at it, I go, that's like Atari days on steroids, okay? If you remember the Atari. This is not even good graphics or anything. But it's a whole world in which there are people all over the world that are at the same time playing together, okay? So that's kind of the fixation with it. The guy that developed it sold it for, I think, $10 billion dollars. Okay, And then he went off and he lives. He's over in the Netherlands. You can go. You can follow, follow his Twitter feed. Well, one of the most amazing things was after the wealth came, after all of that stuff came, and you know, something unimaginable to him happened. All of his friends left. And he's, he's, one, of, he, he's one of those who has fully recognized how empty all of the wealth and the fame really was. And so he sits around now trying to find ways in which he can just be ordinary again. And he says he's sorry that he ever sold Minecraft. He invented it in his basement and and, and ended up 
making him a billionaire. But he saw the vanity in all of it once he had it. Listen, the closer we are, the more difficult it is. The Western world, Europe's already been there in their long past, and we're right behind them because of the wealth and the status and the upper descent in our lives, okay? This is a great challenge for us. It's a great challenge for us. It is a great challenge for us even in this community, right? It's a challenge for us to stay focused on the simplicity of the gospel because we want to do something to change it and help it along. But it is a very simple message that we're all in great need because of our sinful hearts. And the only thing that will cure them is the gospel that tells us that Jesus Christ came into this world. He lived and died to rescue us from our sin and ourselves. It doesn't need any help. It doesn't need a hop along. It doesn't, it doesn't need anything. No more education. None of that will help it. We think we can. God says you can't. And so that's a challenge to us. It's an ordinary kingdom. Here's the fourth point as we close. It's a demanding kingdom. It's a demanding kingdom. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago, we used the C.S. The CS Lewis illustration in which he talked about somebody coming in to fix your house. And so you hire somebody and he's going to come in and he's going to fix your house. And the next thing you know, He's fixed your house and he's adding on new additions and new wings and you go, this isn't at all what I expected. And that's what coming to faith in Christ does. It's free. It's the free offer of the gospel. But when you are transformed and when he comes in and he changes your heart, what happens? He takes over. And he says, it's mine. It's all mine. And you willingly want to give it away. The more you see you're holding on, the more you want to give away and let him have control. Several years ago, I knew a guy. And his, when he was a young, young guy, still in high school, he, um, he started using drugs. And he used and he used and he used, and then he went off to college and he used more. And then um, he's brilliant, incredibly smart guy, very talented um, and then he got married, and he moved, and he went down to New Orleans, and, and, and on and on, and his life began. But all along the way, the drugs kept asking for more. More. I want more. I want more. I want more of your life. And pretty soon, he was consumed with his drug use. And it took over his marriage, and it took over his parenting, and it took over his job. The positive of that is that's what the gospel should do in our lives. It comes in and it asks for more and more and more and more. And in the parable, what do you see? Jesus identifies these people, right? Folks that were out there and they had received the invitation. They had it in their back pocket. They had said, yes, I'm coming to the dinner. And then when it was time to come to the dinner, what did they say? I got other things to do. Okay? I've got other things to do, symptomatic of the fact that they had not truly yielded to Jesus. They had not 
truly understood the call. If you go on and you read a little bit further, the next thing that Jesus talks about is he talks about the cost of discipleship in which Jesus says, right, those who follow me must take up their cross and follow me. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. Very graphic image for saying you've got to lay down your life as you pick up my life. You don't do it to earn the, you don't, you don't earn your salvation that way. But as the gospel comes to you, that's what it demands. My life, my all. It's an exchange that takes place. And it's a very natural exchange. It's a, very, it's a God-glorifying, God-honoring exchange. As we grow more in the gospel, we grow less in our own desires and passions for all those sorts of things. And so let me ask you, as Jesus talks about this great banquet, as he talks about all of these, he, these little aspects of that kingdom, that kingdom that he is bringing, that the banquet here represents for us, what is it that it takes to enter into the banquet? Well, he tells us it's humility. It takes humility. All of those things, recognizing each of those takes humility. Now, the message this morning isn't leave and go be more humble. Because if you walked out of this room this morning and you tried to be more humble, what do you think you would end up becoming? More prideful. <laughs> okay? It's a paradox. And so how do you get there? How do we get there? How does this happen in our lives? How, how do we see and savor the freedom of the gospel? How, how do we know it as an ordinary kingdom? How do these things happen? And here's the remarkable thing. It happens as you generate and focus on the gospel itself. Why? I love this. Tim Keller always says it this way. He says, because the gospel does two things in our lives. Right? When we're struggling... When we look at ourselves and we see our own sin-ravaged hearts, when, when, we're, when we're beat down, when we're burdened, what does the gospel come to us and say? It comes and it says to us that you are so worthy, that God loved you so much that He sent His Son into the world to die for you. That's love. That Jesus came to die for you and for me. And so when you are the lowest of the low, that gospel message comes and lifts you up. It's a humbling message because you already know how sick and tired and worn out and wounded you are and sinful you are and burdened you are. But here's the second part. The second part is there are times when we're flying high. There's times when we've had our quiet times a, a whole two months in a row every single day and we journaled and we've, we've prayed and, and we haven't yelled at the kids or, or the grandkids. And we've, we've just done marvelous. And then what does the gospel come and say? It comes and it says this. You're so sinful that I had to send my son into the world to die for you. See what it does? It does both. It pulls us down when we're flying high. It lifts us up when we're riding low. All of it centering on a gospel-driven humility that the kingdom banquet requires for us. Let's pray.
Father, we want to pause and stop this morning. We want to give you great thanks uh, for the banquet that we have been invited to, that some of us have accepted that invitation to. And Father, we want to continue with hearts of thankfulness for you, for the for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the love you've shown us, for the grace that you've lavished upon us, for the mercy that is ours in Him, for the forgiveness of sins that we have. Father, how great and awesome are you that you've done this for us. And Father, in the last day, we want to sit down. We want to break bread with the great shepherd of the sheep. And so we pray, carry us on. Father, if our legs are weary, we pray that you would strengthen us. Father, where we struggle with pride, bring us down, bring us low. Remind us of all that you've had to do in order to redeem us. And Father, for those who are here this morning struggling with even their self-worth, they, had it, they found it hard to get out of bed today. Father, would you remind them of your great love for them? You sent Jesus into the world. We praise you. We thank you this day. We ask now, receive our praise as we go into the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.